Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 69, The Funeral Haul in the chains! Let the carcass go astern! The vast tackles have now done their duty. The peeled white body of the beheaded whale flashes like a marble sepulchre. Though changed in hue, it has not perceptibly lost anything in bulk. It is still colossal. Slowly it floats more and more away the water round it torn and splashed by the insatiate sharks, and the air above vexed with rapacious flights of screaming fowls, whose beaks are like so many insulting poniards in the whale. The vast white headless phantom floats further and further from the ship, and every rod that it so floats, what seem square roods of sharks and cubic roods of fowls, augment the murderous din. For hours and hours from the almost stationary ship that hideous sight is seen. Beneath the unclouded and mild azure sky, upon the face of the pleasant sea, wafted by the joyous breezes, that great mass of death floats on and on till lost in infinite perspectives. There's a most doleful and most mocking funeral, the sea vultures, all in pious mourning, the air sharks, all punctiliously in black or speckled. In life, but few of them would have helped the whale, I ween, if peradventure he had needed it, but upon the banquet of his funeral they most piously do pounce. O oh, horrible vulturism of earth, from which not the mightiest whale is free! Nor is this the end. Desecrated as the body is, a vengeful ghost survives and hovers over it to scare. Espied by some timid man of war or blundering discovery vessel from afar, when the distance obscuring the swarming fowls nevertheless still shows the white mass floating in the sun and the white spray heaving high against it, straightway the whale's unharming corpse with trembling fingers is set down in the log, shoals, rocks, and breakers hereabouts. Beware! And for years afterwards, perhaps, ships shun the place, leaping over it as silly sheep leap over a vacuum, because their leader originally leaped there when a stick was held. There's your law of precedence. There's your utility of traditions. There's the story of your obstinate survival of old beliefs never bottomed on the earth and now not even hovering in the air. There's orthodoxy. Thus, while in life the great whale's body may have been a real terror to his foes, in his death his ghost becomes a powerless panic to a world. Are you a believer in ghosts, my friend? There are other ghosts than the Cock Lane one, and far deeper men than Dr. Johnson who believe in them. Chapter 70 The Sphinx It should not have been omitted 
that previous to completely stripping the body of the Leviathan, he was beheaded. Now, the beheading of the sperm whale is a scientific anatomical feat, upon which experienced whale surgeons very much pride themselves, and not without reason. Consider that the whale has nothing that can properly be called a neck. On the contrary, where his head and body seem to join, there, in that very place, is the thickest part of him. Remember also that the surgeon must operate from above, some eight or ten feet intervening between him and his subject and that subject almost hidden in a discolored, rolling, and oftentimes tumultuous and bursting sea. Bear in mind, too, that under these untoward circumstances, he has to cut many feet deep in the flesh, and in that subterraneous manner, without so much as getting one single peep into the ever-contracting gash thus made, he must skillfully steer clear of all adjacent interdicted parts, and exactly divide the spine at a critical point hard by its insertion into the skull. Do you not marvel, then, at Stubbs' boast, that he demanded but ten minutes to behead a sperm whale? When first severed, the head is dropped astern and held there by a cable till the body is stripped. That done, if it belong to a small whale, it is hoisted on deck to be deliberately disposed of. But with a grown full leviathan, this is impossible, for the sperm whale's head embraces nearly one-third of his entire bulk, and completely to suspend such a burden as that, even by the immense tackles of a whaler, this were as vain a thing as to attempt weighing a Dutch barn in a jeweler's scales. The Pequod's whale being decapitated and the body stripped, the head was hoisted against the ship's side, about halfway out of the sea, so that it might yet in great part be buoyed up by its native element. And there, with the strained craft steeply leaning over to it, by reason of the enormous downward drag from the lower masthead, and every yard arm on that side projecting like a crane over the waves, there that blood-dripping head hung to the Pequod's waist like the giant hulfernesses from the girdle of Judith. When this last task was accomplished, it was noon, and the seamen went below to their dinner. Silence reigned over the before tumultuous but now deserted deck. An intense copper calm, like a universal yellow lotus, was more and more unfolding its noiseless, measureless leaves upon the sea. A short space elapsed, and up into this noiselessness came Ahab alone from his cabin. Taking a few turns on the quarter-deck, he paused to gaze over the side. Then slowly getting into the main chains, he took Stubbs' long spade, still remaining there after the whale's decapitation, and striking it into the lower part of the half-suspended mast, placed its other end crutchwise under one arm, and so stood leaning over with eyes attentively fixed on this head. It was a black and hooded head, and hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm, it seemed the sphinxes in the desert. Speak thou, vast and venerable head, muttered Ahab, which, though ungarnished with a beard, 
Yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses. Speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. Of all divers, thou hast dived the deepest. That head upon which the upper sun now gleams has moved amid this world's foundations, where unrecorded names and navies rust and untold hopes and anchors rot, where in her murderous hold this frigate earth is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned, there, in that awful waterland, there was thy most familiar home. Thou hast been where bell or diver never went, hast slept by many a sailor's side where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Thou saw'st the locked lovers when leaping from their flaming ship, heart to heart they sank beneath the exulting wave, true to each other when heaven seemed false to them. Thou saw'st the murderous mate when tossed by pirates from the midnight deck. For hours he fell into the deeper midnight of the insatiate maw, and his murderers still sailed on unharmed. While swift lightning shivered the neighboring ship that would have borne a righteous husband to outstretched longing arms. O head, thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham, and not one syllable is thine. Sail ho! cried a triumphant voice from the main mast. Aye? Well now, that's cheering, cried Ahab, suddenly erecting himself, while whole thunderous clouds swept aside from his brow. That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man. Where away? Three points on the starboard bow, sir, and bringing down her breeze to us. Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul would come along that way and to my breezelessness bring his breeze? O oh, nature and soul of man, how far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies? Not the smallest atom stirs or lives on matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. Chapter 71 The Jeroboam Story Hand in hand, ship and breeze blew on, but the breeze came faster than the ship and soon the Pequod began to rock. By and by, through the glass, the stranger's boats and manned mastheads proved her a whale ship. But as she was so far to windward, and shooting by, apparently making a passage to some other ground, the Pequod could not hope to reach her. So the signal was set to see what response would be made. Here be it said that like the vessels of military marines, the ships of the American whale fleet have each a private signal, all which signals being collected in a book with the names of the respective vessels attached. Every captain is provided with it. Thereby, the whale commanders are enabled to recognize each other upon the ocean, even at considerable distances and with no small facility. The Pequod's signal was at last responded to by the strangers setting her own, which proved the ship to be the Jeroboam of Nantucket. 
Squaring her yards, she bore down, ranged a beam under the Pequod's lee, and lowered a boat. It soon drew nigh. But, as the side ladder was being rigged by Starbuck's order to accommodate the visiting captain, the stranger in question waved his hand from his boat's stern, in token of that proceeding being entirely unnecessary. It turned out that the Jeroboam had a malignant epidemic on board, and that Mayhew, her captain, was fearful of infecting the Pequod's company. For, though himself and boat's crew remained untainted, and though his ship was half a rifle shot off, and an incorruptible sea and air rolling and flowing between, yet conscientiously adhering to the timid quarantine of the land, he peremptorily refused to come into direct contact with the Pequod. But this did by no means prevent all communications. Preserving an interval of some few yards between itself and the ship, the Jeroboam's boat, by the occasional use of its oars, contrived to keep parallel to the Pequod as she heavily forged through the sea, for by this time it blew very fresh. With her main topsail aback, though, indeed, at times by the sudden onset of a large rolling wave, the boat would be pushed some way ahead, but would be soon skillfully brought to her proper bearings again. Subject to this, and other the like interruptions now and then, a conversation was sustained between the two parties, but at intervals not without still another interruption of a very different sort. Pulling an oar in the Jeroboam's boat, was a man of a singular appearance. Even in that wild, wailing life where individual notabilities make up all totalities. He was a small, short, youngish man, sprinkled all over his face with freckles and wearing redundant yellow hair. A long-skirted, cabalistically cut coat of a faded walnut tinge enveloped him, the overlapping sleeves of which were rolled up on his wrists. A deep, settled, fanatic delirium was in his eyes. So soon as this figure had been first descried, Stubb had exclaimed, That's he! That's he! The long-togged scaramouche the town hose company told us of. Stubb here alluded to a strange story told of the Jeroboam, and a certain man among her crew, some time previous when the Pequod spoke the town ho. According to this account, and what was subsequently learned, it seemed that the Scaramouche in question had gained a wonderful ascendancy over almost everybody in the Jeroboam. His story was this. He had been originally nurtured among the crazy society of Neskeuna Shakers, where he had been a great prophet. In their cracked, secret meetings, having several times descended from heaven by the way of a trapdoor, announcing the speedy opening of the seventh vial, which he carried in his vest pocket, but which, instead of containing gunpowder, was supposed to be charged with laudanum. A strange apostolic whim having seized him, he had left Neskeuna for Nantucket, where, with that cunning peculiar to craziness, he assumed a steady, common-sense exterior, and offered himself as a green-hand candidate for the Jeroboam's whaling voyage. They engaged him, 
But straightway upon the ship's getting out of sight of land, his insanity broke out in a freshet. He announced himself as the archangel Gabriel and commanded the captain to jump overboard. He published his manifesto, whereby he set himself forth as the deliverer of the isles of the sea and vicar general of all Oceanica. The unflinching earnestness with which he declared these things, the dark, daring play of his sleepless, excited imagination, and all the preternatural terrors of real delirium, united to invest this Gabriel in the minds of the majority of the ignorant crew with an atmosphere of sacredness. Moreover, they were afraid of him. As such a man, however, was not of much practical use in the ship, especially as he refused to work except when he pleased, the incredulous captain would fain have been rid of him. But, apprised that that individual's intention was to land him in the first convenient port, the archangel forthwith opened all his seals and vials, devoting the ship and all hands to unconditional perdition in case this intention was carried out. So strongly did he work upon his disciples among the crew that at last in a body they went to the captain and told him if Gabriel was sent from the ship, not a man of them would remain. He was therefore forced to relinquish his plan. Nor would they permit Gabriel to be any way maltreated, say or do what he would, so that it came to pass that Gabriel had complete freedom of the ship. The consequence of all this was that the archangel cared little or nothing for the captain and mates, and since the epidemic had broken out, he carried a higher hand than ever, declaring that the plague, as he called it, was at his sole command, nor should it be stayed but according to his good pleasure. The sailors, mostly poor devils, cringed, and some of them fawned before him, in obedience to his instructions, sometimes rendering him personal homage as to a god. Such things may seem incredible, but, however wondrous, they are true. Nor is the history of fanatics half so striking in respect to the measureless self-deception of the fanatic himself as his measureless power of deceiving and bedeviling so many others. But it is time to return to the Pequod, I fear not thy epidemic man, said Ahab from the bulwarks to Captain Mayhew, who stood in the boat's stern. Come aboard. But now Gabriel started to his feet. Think, think of the fevers, yellow and bilious. Beware of the horrible plague. Gabriel, Gabriel, cried Captain Mayhew. Thou must either, but at that instant, a headlong wave shot the boat far ahead, and its seethings drowned all speech. Hast thou seen the white whale? demanded Ahab when the boat drifted back. Think, think of thy whaleboat, stoven and sunk. Beware of the horrible tale. I tell thee again, Gabriel, that... But again the boat tore ahead as if dragged by fiends. Nothing was said for some moments, while a succession of riotous waves rolled by, 
which by one of those occasional capricious of the sea were tumbling, not heaving it. Meantime, the hoisted sperm whale's head jogged about very violently, and Gabriel was seen eyeing it with rather more apprehensiveness than his archangel nature seemed to warrant. When this interlude was over, Captain Mayhew began a dark story concerning Moby Dick, not, however, without frequent interruptions from Gabriel, whenever his name was mentioned, and the crazy sea that seemed leagued with him. It seemed that the Jeroboam had not long left home, when upon speaking a whale ship, her people were reliably apprised of the existence of Moby Dick and the havoc he had made. Greedily sucking in this intelligence, Gabriel solemnly warned the captain against attacking the white whale in case the monster should be seen. In his gibbering insanity, pronouncing the white whale to be no less a being than the shaker God incarnated, the shakers receiving the Bible. But when, some year or two afterwards, Moby Dick was fairly sighted from the mastheads, Macy, the chief mate, burned with ardor to encounter him and the captain himself being not unwilling to let him have the opportunity, despite all the archangel's denunciations and forewarnings, Macy succeeded in persuading five men to man his boat. With them he pushed off, and, after much weary pulling and many perilous, unsuccessful onsets, he at last succeeded in getting one iron fast. Meantime, Gabriel, ascending to the main royal masthead, was tossing one arm in frantic gestures and hurling forth prophecies of speedy doom to the sacrilegious assailants of his divinity. Now, while Macy, the mate, was standing up in his boat's bow and with all the reckless energy of his tribe was venting his wild exclamations upon the whale and essaying to get a fair chance for his poised lance, lo. A broad white shadow rose from the sea, by its quick fanning motion temporarily taking the breath out of the bodies of the oarsmen. Next instant, the luckless mate, so full of furious life, was smitten bodily into the air, and making a long arc in his descent, fell into the sea at the distance of about fifty yards. Not a chip of the boat was harmed, nor a hair of any oarsman's head, but the mate forever sank. It is well to parenthesize here that of the fatal accidents in the sperm whale fishery, this kind is perhaps almost as frequent as any. Sometimes nothing is injured but the man who is thus annihilated. Oftener the boat's bow is knocked off for the thigh board in which the headsman stands is torn from its place and accompanies the body. But strangest of all is the circumstance that in more instances than one, when the body has been recovered, not a single mark of violence is discernible, the man being stark dead. The whole calamity, with the falling form of Macy, was plainly descried from the ship. Raising a piercing shriek, The vile! The vile! Gabriel called off the terror-stricken crew from the further hunting of the whale. This terrible event clothed the archangel with added influence, 
because his credulous disciples believed that he had specifically foreannounced it, instead of only making a general prophecy, which anyone might have done, and so have chanced to hit one of many marks in the wide margin allowed. He became a nameless terror to the ship. Mayhew, having concluded his narration, Ahab put such questions to him that the stranger captain could not forbear inquiring whether he intended to hunt the white whale, if opportunity should offer. To which Ahab answered, Aye! Straight away then, Gabriel once more started to his feet, glaring upon the old man, and vehemently exclaimed with downward pointed finger, Think! Think of the blasphemer, dead and down there! Beware of the blasphemer's fate. Ahab stolidly turned aside, then said to Mayhew, Captain, I have just bethought me of my letter bag. There is a letter for one of thy officers, if I mistake not. Starbuck, look over the bag. Every whale ship takes out a goodly number of letters for various ships, whose delivery to the persons to whom they may be addressed depends upon the mere chance of encountering them in the four oceans. Thus, most letters never reach their mark, and many are only received after attaining an age of two or three years or more. Soon, Starbuck returned with a letter in his hand. It was sorely tumbled, damp, and covered with a dull, spotted green mold in consequence of being kept in a dark locker of the cabin. Of such a letter... Death himself might well have been the postboy. Canst not read it? cried Ahab. Give it me, man. Aye, aye, it's but a dim scrawl. What's this? As he was studying it out, Starbuck took a long cutting spade pole and with his knife slightly split the end to insert the letter there and in that way hand it to the boat, without its coming any closer to the ship. Meantime, Ahab, holding the letter, muttered, Mr. Har, yes, Mr. Harry, a woman's penny hand, the man's wife, I'll wager. Aye, Mr. Harry Macy, ship Jeroboam. Why, it's Macy's, and he's dead. Poor fellow, poor fellow. And from his wife, sighed Mayhew, but let me have it. Nay, keep it thyself, cried Gabriel to Ahab. Thou art soon going that way. Curses throttle ye, yelled Ahab. Captain Mayhew, stand by now to receive it. And taking the fatal missive from Starbuck's hands, he caught it in the slit of the pole and reached it over towards the boat. But as he did so, the oarsman expectantly desisted from rowing. The boat drifted a little towards the ship's stern, so that, as if by magic, the letter suddenly ranged along with Gabriel's eager hand. He clutched it in an instant, seized the boat knife, and impaling the letter on it, sent it thus loaded back into the ship. It fell at Ahab's feet. Then Gabriel shrieked out to his comrades to give way with their oars, and in that manner the mutinous boat rapidly shot away from the Pequod. As, 
After this interlude, the seamen resumed their work upon the jacket of the whale. Many strange things were hinted in reference to this wild affair. Chapter 72. The Monkey Rope. In the tumultuous business of cutting in and attending to a whale, there is much running backwards and forwards among the crew. Now hands are wanted here, and then again hands are wanted there. There is no staying in any one place. For one and at the same time, everything has to be done everywhere. It is much the same with him who endeavors the description of the scene. We must now retrace our way a little. It was mentioned that upon first breaking ground in the whale's back, the blubber hook was inserted into the original hole there cut by the spades of the mates. But how did so clumsy and weighty a mass as that same hook get fixed in that hole? It was inserted there by my particular friend Queequeg, whose duty it was, as harpooner, to descend upon the monster's back for the special purpose referred to. But in very many cases, circumstances require that the harpooner shall remain on the whale till the whole flensing or stripping operation is concluded. The whale, be it observed, lies almost entirely submerged, excepting the immediate parts operated upon. So down there, some ten feet below the level of the deck, the poor harpooner flounders about, half on the whale and half in the water, as the vast mass revolves like a treadmill beneath him. On the occasion in question, Queequeg figured in the highland costume, a shirt and socks, in which to my eyes at least he appeared to uncommon advantage, and no one had a better chance to observe him, as will presently be seen. Being the savage's bowsman, that is the person who pulled the bow oar in his boat, the second one from forward, it was my cheerful duty to attend upon him while taking that hard scrabble scramble upon the dead whale's back. You have seen Italian organ boys holding a dancing ape by a long cord. Just so, from the ship's steep side, did I hold Queequeg down there in the sea, by what is technically called in the fishery a monkey rope, attached to a long strip of canvas belted around his waist. It was a humorously perilous business for both of us, for, before we proceed further, it must be said that the monkey rope was fast at both ends, fast to Queequeg's broad canvas belt and fast to my narrow leather one. So that for better or for worse, we too, for the time, were wedded, and should poor Queequeg sink to rise no more, then both usage and honor demanded that instead of cutting the cord, it should drag me down in his wake. So then... An elongated Siamese ligature united us. Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother. Nor could I in any way get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then, that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint-stock company of two, that my free will had received a mortal wound, 
and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore, I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have so gross an injustice. And yet, still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and ship, which would threaten to jam him, Still further pondering, I say, I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. Only, in most cases, he, one way or other, has this Siamese connection with a plurality of other mortals. If your banker breaks, you snap. If your apothecary by mistake sends you poison in your pills, you die. True, You may say that, by exceeding caution, you may possibly escape these and the multitudinous other evil chances of life. But handle Queequeg's monkey rope heedfully as I would, sometimes he jerked it so that I came very near sliding overboard. Nor could I possibly forget that, do what I would, I only had the management of one end of it. Note. The monkey rope is found in all whalers but it was only in the Pequod that the monkey and his holder were ever tied together. This improvement upon the original usage was introduced by no less a man than Stubb, in order to afford the imperiled harpooner the strongest possible guarantee for the faithfulness and diligence of his monkey rope holder. I have hinted that I would jerk poor Queequeg from between the whale and the ship, where he would occasionally fall, from the incessant rolling and swaying of both. But this was not the only jamming jeopardy he was exposed to. Unappalled by the massacre made upon them during the night, the sharks now freshly and more keenly allured by the before-pent blood which began to flow from the carcass, the rabid creatures swarmed round it like bees in a beehive. And right in among those sharks was Queequeg, who often pushed them aside with his floundering feet, a thing altogether incredible were it not that attracted by such prey as a dead whale, the otherwise miscellaneously carnivorous sharks will seldom touch a man. Nevertheless, it may well be believed that since they have such a ravenous finger in the pie, it is deemed but wise to look sharp to them. Accordingly, besides the monkey rope, with which I now and then jerked the poor fellow from too close a vicinity to the maw of what seemed a peculiarly ferocious shark, he was provided with still another protection. Suspended over the side in one of the stages, Tashtego and Degu continually flourished over his head a couple of keen whale spades, wherewith they slaughtered as many sharks as they could reach. This procedure of theirs, to be sure, was very disinterested and benevolent of them. They meant Queequeg's best happiness, I admit, but in their hasty zeal to befriend him, and from the circumstance that both he and the sharks were at times half-hidden by the blood-muddled water, those indiscreet spades of theirs would come nearer amputating a leg than a tail. But poor Queequeg, I suppose, straining and gasping there with that great iron hook, poor Queequeg, I suppose, 
only prayed to his yojo and gave up his life into the hands of his gods. Well, well, my dear comrade and twin brother, thought I, as I drew in and then slacked off the rope to every swell of the sea, what matters it, after all? Are you not the precious image of each and all of us men in this wailing world? That unsounded ocean you gasp in is life. Those sharks, your foes. Those spades, your friends. And what between sharks and spades you are in a sad pickle and peril, poor lad. But courage, there is good cheer in store for you, Queequeg. For now, as with blue lips and bloodshot eyes, the exhausted savage at last climbs up the chains and stands all dripping and involuntarily trembling over the side, the steward advances and with a benevolent, consolatory glance hands him, what? Some cognac? No! Hands him, ye gods, hands him a cup of tepid ginger and water. Ginger? Do I smell ginger? Suspiciously asked Stubb, coming near. Yes, this must be ginger, peering into the as-yet-untasted cup. Then standing as if incredulous for a while, he calmly walked towards the astonished steward, slowly saying, Ginger! Ginger! And will you have the goodness to tell me, Mr. Doughboy, where lies the virtue of ginger? Ginger? Is ginger the sort of fuel you use, Doughboy, to kindle a fire in this shivering cannibal? Ginger? What the devil is ginger? Sea coal? Firewood? Lucifer matches? Tinder? Gunpowder? What the devil is ginger, I say, that you offer this cup to our poor Queequeg here? There is some sneaking temperance society movement about this ship, he suddenly added, now approaching Starbuck, who had just come forward. Will you look at that canakin, sir? Smell of it, if you please. Then, watching the mate's countenance, he added, The steward, Mr. Starbuck, had the face to offer that calomel and jalap to Queequeg. There, this instant off the whale. Is the steward an apothecary, sir? And may I ask whether this is the sort of bitters by which he blows back the life into a half-drowned man? I trust not, said Starbuck. It is poor stuff enough. Aye, aye, steward, cried Stubb. We'll teach you to drug a harpooner. None of your apothecary's medicine here. You want to poison us, do ye? You have got out insurances on our lives and want to murder us all and pocket the proceeds, do ye? It was not me, cried Doughboy. It was Aunt Charity that brought the ginger on board and bade me never give the harpooners any spirits but only this ginger jub, so she called it. Ginger jub, you gingerly rascal. Take that and run along with ye to the lockers and get something better. I hope I do no wrong, Mr. Starbuck. It is the captain's orders. Grog for the harpooner on a whale. Enough, replied Starbuck. Only don't hit him again. But, oh, I never hurt when I hit, except when I hit a whale or something of that sort. And this fellow's a weasel. What were you about saying, sir?
only this, go down with him and get what thou wantest thyself. When Stubb reappeared, he came with a dark flask in one hand and a sort of tea candy in the other. The first contained strong spirits and was handed to Queequeg. The second was Aunt Charity's gift, and that was freely given to the waves. Chapter 73. Stub and Flask kill a right whale, and then have a talk over him. It must be borne in mind that all this time we have a sperm whale's prodigious head hanging to the Pequod's side. But we must let it continue hanging there a while till we can get a chance to attend to it. For the present, other matters press, and the best we can do now for the head is to pray heaven the tackles may hold. Now during the past night and forenoon, the Pequod had gradually drifted into a sea, which, by its occasional patches of yellow brit, gave unusual tokens of the vicinity of right whales, a species of leviathan that but few supposed to be at this particular time lurking anywhere near. And though all hands commonly disdained the capture of those inferior creatures, and though the Pequod was not commissioned to cruise for them at all, and though she had passed numbers of them near the Crozets without lowering a boat, Yet now that a sperm whale had been brought alongside and beheaded, to the surprise of all, the announcement was made that a right whale should be captured that day, if opportunity presented. Nor was this long wanting. Tail spouts were seen to leeward, and two boats, stubs and flasks, were detached in pursuit. Pulling further and further away, they at last became almost invisible to the men at the masthead. But suddenly, in the distance, they saw a great heap of tumultuous white water, and soon after, news came from aloft that one or both the boats must be fast. An interval passed, and the boats were in plain sight, in the act of being dragged right towards the ship by the towing whale. So close did the monster come to the hull, that at first sight it seemed as if he meant it malice. But suddenly, going down in a maelstrom, Within three rods of the planks, he wholly disappeared from view, as if diving under the keel. Cut! Cut! was the cry from the ship to the boats, which, for one instant, seemed on the point of being brought with a deadly dash against the vessel's side. But having plenty of line yet in the tubs, and the whale not sounding very rapidly, they paid out abundance of rope and at the same time pulled with all their might so as to get ahead of the ship. For a few minutes the struggle was intensely critical, for while they still slacked out the tightened line in one direction, and still plied their oars in another, the contending strain threatened to take them under. But it was only a few feet advance they sought to gain, and they stuck to it till they did gain it, when instantly a swift tremor was felt running like lightning along the keel as the strained line, scraping beneath the ship, suddenly rose to view under her bows, snapping and quivering, and so flinging off its drippings that the drops felt like bits of broken glass on the water, while the whale beyond also rose to sight, and once more the boats were free to fly. 
But the fagged whale abated his speed, and blindly altering his course, went round the stern of the ship, towing the two boats after him, so that they performed a complete circuit. Meantime, they hauled more and more upon their lines, till close flanking him on both sides, Stubb answered Flask with lance for lance, and thus round and round the Pequod the battle went, while the multitudes of sharks that had before swum round the sperm whale's body rushed to the fresh blood that was spilled, thirstily drinking at every new gash, as the eager Israelites did at the new bursting fountains that poured from the smitten rock. At last his spout grew thick, and with a frightful roll and vomit, he turned upon his back a corpse. While the two headsmen were engaged in making fast cords to his flukes, and in other ways getting the mass in readiness for towing, some conversation ensued between them. I wonder what the old man wants with this tub of foul lard, said Stubb, not without some disgust at the thought of having to do with so ignoble a leviathan. Wants with it? said Flask, coiling some spare line over the boat's bow. Did you never hear that the ship which but once has a sperm whale's head hoisted on her starboard side, and at the same time a right whale's on the larboard? Did you never hear, Stubb, that that ship can never afterwards capsize? Why not? I don't know, but I heard that gamboge ghost of a Fadala saying so and he seems to know all about ship's charms. But I sometimes think he'll charm the ship to no good at last. I don't half like that chap, Stubb. Did you ever notice how that tusk of his is a sort of carved into a snake's head, Stubb? Sink him! I never look at him at all, but if I ever get a chance of a dark night, and he's standing hard by the bulwarks, and no one by, look down there, flask pointing to the sea with a peculiar motion of both hands. I will I, Flask. I take that Fadala to be the devil in disguise. Do you believe that cock and bull story about his having been stowed away on board our ship? He's the devil, I say. The reason why you don't see his tail is because he tucks it up out of sight. He carries it coiled away in his pocket, I guess. Blast him! Now that I think of it, He's always wanting oakum to stuff into the toes of his boots. He sleeps in his boots, don't he? He hasn't got any hammock, but I've seen him lay of nights in a coil of rigging. No doubt it's because of his cursed tail. He coils it down, do you see, in the eye of the rigging. What's the old man have so much to do with him for? Striking up a swap or a bargain, I suppose. Bargain? About what? Why, do you see, the old man is hard bent after that white whale, and the devil there is trying to come round him and get him to swap away his silver watch or his soul or something of that sort, and then he'll surrender Moby Dick. Pooh, Stubb, you are skylarking. How can Fadala do that? I don't know, Flask. But the devil is a curious chap and a wicked one, I tell ye. Why, they say as how he went a-sauntering into the old flagship once, switching his tail about devilish easy and gentleman-like, 
and inquiring if the old governor was at home. Well, he was at home, and asked the devil what he wanted. The devil, switching his hooves up, and says, I want John. What for, says the old governor. What business is that of yours, says the devil, getting mad. I want to use him. Take him, says the governor, and by the Lord, Flask, if the devil didn't give John the Asiatic cholera before he got through with him. I'll eat this whale in one mouthful. But look sharp, ain't you already there? Well then, pull ahead and let's get the whale alongside. I think I remember some such story as you were telling, said Flask, when at last the two boats were slowly advancing with their burden towards the ship but I can't remember where. Three Spaniards, adventures of those three bloody-minded soldados. Did you read it there, Flask? I guess you did. No, never saw such a book. Heard of it, though. But now tell me, Stubb, do you suppose that that devil you were speaking of just now was the same you say is now on board the Pequod? Am I the same man that helped kill this whale? Does the devil live forever? Who ever heard that the devil was dead? Did you ever see any parson aware in mourning for the devil? And if the devil has a latch key to get into the admiral's cabin, don't you suppose he can crawl into a portal? Tell me that, Mr. Flask. How old do you suppose Fadala is, Stubb? Do you see that main mast there? Pointing to the ship. Well, that's the figure one. Now take all the hoops in the Pequod's hold and string along in a row with that mast for oughts, do you see? Well, that wouldn't begin to be Fadala's age. Nor all the coopers in creation couldn't show hoops enough to make oughts enough. But see here, Stubb, I thought you a little boasted just now that you meant to give Fadala a sea toss if you got a good chance. Now, if he's so old as all those hoops of yours come to, and if he is going to live forever, what good will it do to pitch him overboard? Tell me that. Give him a good ducking anyhow. But he'd crawl back. Duck him again and keep ducking him. Suppose he should take it into his head to duck you, though. Yes, and drown you. What then? I should like to see him try it. I'd give him such a pair of black eyes that he wouldn't dare to show his face in the admiral's cabin again for a long while, let alone down in the orlop there where he lives and hereabouts on the upper decks where he sneaks so much. Damn the devil flask, so you suppose I'm afraid of the devil? Who's afraid of him except the old governor who daresn't catch him and put him in double darbies as he deserves, but lets him go about kidnapping people? I and signed a bond with him that all the people the devil kidnapped, he'd roast for him? There's a governor. Do you suppose Fadala wants to kidnap Captain Ahab? Do I suppose it? You'll know it before long, Flask but I am going now to keep a sharp lookout on him, and if I see anything very suspicious going on, I'll just take him by the nape of his neck and say, Look here, Beelzebub, you don't do it. And if he makes any fuss, by the Lord, I'll make a grab into his pocket for his tail, 
Take it to the capstan and give him such a wrenching and heaving that his tail will come short off at the stump. Do you see? And then, I rather guess when he finds himself docked in that queer fashion, he'll sneak off without the poor satisfaction of feeling his tail between his legs. And what will you do with the tail, Stub? Do with it? Sell it for an ox whip when we get home. What else? Now, do you mean what you say, and have you been saying all along, Stub? Mean or mean not, here we are at the ship. The boats were hailed to tow the whale on the larboard side, where fluke chains and other necessaries were already prepared for securing him. Didn't I tell you so? said Flask. Yes, soon you'll see this right whale's head hoisted up opposite that parmacetti's. In good time, Flask's saying proved true. As before, the Pequod steeply leaned over towards the sperm whale's head. Now, by the counterpoise of both heads, she regained her even keel, though sorely strained, you may well believe. So when on one side you hoist in Locke's head, you go over that way. But now on the other side hoist in Kant's, and you come back again, but in very poor plight. Thus some minds forever keep trimming boat. O oh, ye foolish, throw all these thunderheads overboard, and then you will float light and right. In disposing of the body of a right whale, when brought alongside the ship, the same preliminary proceedings commonly take place as in the case of a sperm whale. Only, in the latter instance, the head is cut off whole, but in the former, the lips and tongue are separately removed and hoisted on deck, with all the well-known black bone attached to what is called the crown piece. But nothing like this, in the present case, had been done. The carcasses of both whales had dropped astern, and the head-laden ship not a little resembled a mule carrying a pair of overburdening panniers. Meantime, Fadala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head, and ever and anon glancing from deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand, that the Parsee occupied his shadow, while, if the Parsee's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. As the crew toiled on, Laplandish speculations were bandied among them concerning all these passing things. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time as Ishmael describes the sperm whale's head.